listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Welcome to episode 128 of Cinemental. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Your mother's in here with his cars. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. It was as if there were four razors cutting at the same time. Kill her, Mommy! Kill her! We'll tear your soul apart! I've seen the exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Movie Podcast. We can only hope you enjoy listening to as much as we enjoy making. My name is Stephen Ovicky, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Zan Goblin and Latham Conger III. This is my personally favorite time of the year. Not only does the weather turn cool and wearing a sweatshirt becomes comfy again, but it's Halloween season. And that means we become scaramental, asking our guests for their horror film choices. And I hope this year is as entertaining for you listening as it will be for, well, at least some of our co-hosts and enjoyment. Our returning guest tonight. It's still <laughs> September. I just want to go. It's on Halloween record. season. Halloween season for me is year round, but for most oh. people, it kind of starts when Spirit Halloween stores start popping up. <laughs> that would be now. That's but right. Capitalism screws us again. It's like, what's the <laughs> largest store that's gone out of business in the last six months? That's where our Spirit Halloween is going. <laughs> uh, uh, that would be the uh, Soldier Field. <laughs> so our returning guest tonight never fails to bring interesting films for, to bear for us he's the ceo of starlight runner entertainment and has the greatest job ever who knew he's one of the world's leading experts in story and narrative design he works with execs creative visionaries and global leaders to maximize the effectiveness of brand narratives developing vast fictional story worlds and designing highly successful transmedia franchises for hollywood studios video game publishers and toy companies he has teamed with top creators on such blockbuster properties as avatar halo pirates of the caribbean men in black transformers and the amazing spider-man most recently, he's become creative supervisor for the global transmedia revival of Subaraya Productions' Ultraman. Jeff Gomez, welcome back to Cinemental. Hey, how you doing? Very well, thank Hello, you. Jeff. A pleasure, a pleasure to, to have you back, as always. You, uh, thank you. Your film choices are always uh, not only interesting, but usually entertaining. So, at least for, at least for, I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. So, uh, so let's jump in and do a quick uh, suffering from consumption. Uh, Lay, nothing. You watched nothing this week. I mean, a couple forensic files oh. and an ER. That's it. And ER one ER one ER episode. Yeah, that's all we watched. So busy week on my end. Hassan, what did you watch? See, I watched an episode of the, the latest episode of Evil since I got roped into oh, yeah. now now being attached to that show, unfortunately. Fortunately <laughs> and unfortunately. Latest episode of Lower Decks, latest episode of What If, latest episode of What We Do in the Shadow, well, last week's episode. This is all from last Wednesday to now. Um, yeah. I watched all, all, all of uh, Goliath season four, oh. which is the final season. Oh, okay. I gotta go back. I gotta go. Um, I gotta, gotta watch this. 
you do and you don't. <laughs> well, I don't have to, but I want to. <laughs> um, I think I think the first season is really great. Second season is is really solid. The third season goes way off the rails, but but the fourth season kind of brings it back. Okay, you know, sort of. Uh, but if you but you have to survive that third season, and third season just gets really strange. It just gets it just goes out there. Okay, it's kind of like season two of Evil, where it's like, wow, this is this is this took a concept where it was really subtle, you know, like a real subtle. Maybe this is real. Maybe this is not real. Maybe maybe you know the ethereal exists, and then you know there's another there's a there's a higher being. Maybe there's not. We don't know. It's on the cusp <laughs> to season two. Like, no, there's demons and they're they're effing everybody and they're, you know, like it's it's. I mean, and I'm not I'm not spoiling it. It's just like right. wow. Like there's a, there's a lot of bad shit shit that's that's, uh, that's going on in this. So I don't know. I can't judge it. I haven't seen it the whole thing yet. So I'll let you know. The uh, episode of Why the Last Man. An episode of uh uh the L Word, the the second season of the reboot of the L Word. Oh, and then I I I watched a. a I watched the big friendly giant again. It's one of my favorite big. Fr- oh, Spielberg the BFG. Movies. Yeah. Oh, I've never seen that. It got, <laughs> it got such middling it's, reviews. It's I just good. never really. It's good. It is good. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's saccharine, you know, it is, well. it is full of the Spielberg home goodness, you know, whatever. <laughs> Although dark subject, very dark subject. And then there's, there's, there's a, there's a very, there's an implied real dark moment in it, but the, and they just kind of just skirt over it. So it's, you know, it's not all, I mean, it's, it's a, it's roll doll. So it's, it's not a, you know, it is, it seems like it's happy, but it's usually not, um, you know, cause everybody in Charlie and the chocolate factory died. So, you know, little yeah. things like that, but well, I, mean, I enjoyed the, the giant peach. The book, I mean, is, is quite different or the original story is quite different than the, mm-hmm. In the delightful animated Henry uh, <laughs> yes. Selleck movie, and then I watched the the, the films for uh, this evening, and that is it. That is, it wasn't really that. I mean, look, I did watch a couple of seasons of television shows, so that's not nothing. But basically, right. you know, uh, no one's judging. Done. I'm just, <laughs> I'm yeah, yeah. But it's like when I wrote it down, like I was like, seems like i did a lot more than this but obviously this is all i did so <laughs> it is what it is uh that's enough suffering for us <laughs> what was that latham i didn't hear you i said i i just remembered something i watched oh what was that the crazy bloody fight scene in the tv show invincible with the superheroes but not the show Invincible, just the fight scene. Just the fight scene no, in Invincible. That's like crazy. watching. It's like watching just the hallway fight in Old Boy. Well, it's like watching, you know, one of the vignettes in Heavy Metal in actuality. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was a bathroom fight in uh, in Gross Point. It's not gonna get me to watch the show, but you know, it was pretty like. If you don't know what the show is about, and then you turn that on, you'd be like, "Holy shit!" So how did how did you stumble across just watching that? Uh, it was a Facebook video that came across randomly, like promoting the show or whatever. They're like, "Watch this! You've never seen this before." <laughs> and you did, you were like, right. you, okay. and, and you did, 
<laughs> I watched it. And Knowing you haven't seen, okay, never mind. Um, uh, you know the the show does deliver more of that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, uh, it, that's not a, a standalone uh, situation. In that, I think story. it would get old, but that's just me. I think if you have to sell your story with violence like that, maybe, and your story is typical otherwise, you're probably... You're probably uh, Kirkman. (laughs) Probably (laughs) trying to follow the Tarantino path, and I'm not a big fan of his, so I probably won't watch that show. Just letting you know, everybody... This okay, he but, says this as we're about to go into a discussion about chainsaw duels. Well, <laughs> well, we're, later on we're gonna do. Yeah. That. So <laughs> that being said, uh, Jeff's primary film pick, which ties in nicely to uh, our previous week's episode where we covered Exorcist three, we now take a step back in time to The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. From 1973, directed by William Friedkin with a running time of, uh, depending on uh, which version you watch, 122 minutes. Uh, a young girl. I want to beca- say the, the, uh, the moment we cover uh, Exorcist 2 will be my last on this show. I'm just letting you know that. I'm just letting everyone know that. <laughs> I, I, I will officially quit. I uh that, that film is an abomination. I will, I will I will keep that in mind because I actually <laughs> yeah. had some thoughts about it, but I'm gonna oh, no. pick our own movies because I know what I'm picking. <laughs> <laughs> so uh a young girl becomes host to an ancient evil and must be cleansed by a local priest in what has become considered by many to be the scariest film ever made. Jeff, why did you pick The Exorcist? Um, it, it really had an impact on, on me, on my life. It, it was a very, very powerful. Um, uh, my, my storytelling sensibility um, uh, can be traced to, uh, to The Exorcist. Did you see this um, in the theater? Uh, I did. I uh, it in the theater um, in its first re-release because I was, I was too young to see it. At, when at oh, you? Okay. You didn't see I it when you were four? <laughs> no one was no it's no not the okay we went the second we went the the, the re-release with the director's cut right that was years later that was right? many years later yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. The, first, uh, the first re-release oh. which was in 1975 okay uh, yeah so i didn't go with you because i would you would have been arrested for for kidnapping <laughs> 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 
I was a little scared. Amber alert. Uh, but but let me um, uh, uh, set the stage a little bit for you. H- here we are, the United States of America. <laughs> we, we weren't out of the Vietnam War. It's 1973. The, the hippie movement was, was dying down, but the, the self-indulgent disco era had, had not begun yet. <laughs> Uh, and and there was this uh, this sense of of being drained, this sense that that the the generation gap could never be a, a closed. Um, uh, we were we were entering into Watergate and, and and things like that. Our sense of of stability was being shaken, and that's actually if you look at the uh, Catholic Church and and Christianity in this country. Um, uh, church membership was first starting to drop off at that at that time. This is the context. So here we have a, a movie that that came out in '73 that was absolutely across the board uh, a shocking, electrifyingly shocking. When I first heard about The Exorcist, it was this horror movie where there were lines uh, around, not around the corner, around the block. People wanted to see it. Um, uh, There were reports of fainting, of of people throwing up in in the theater, (laughs) uh, 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 people uh, bolting up and and running the hell out of there. I was frantic to know (laughs) what the story was and and what was going on in in that movie. Um, and even when I was able to encounter people who had seen it, I'd ask them questions and they'd look at me because I was a little kid and, and be only vague, uh, about it. Um, <laughs> they just look uh, at Jeff and go bad. bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this will be a, a kind of recurring thing during this discussion. Um, when I did finally see it, of course it was, it was terrifying. But but in revisiting uh, The Exorcist over the years, uh, uh, particularly now that I have a, a teenage daughter, uh, I, I see it in very, very different ways. The, the interpretation just shifts uh, 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 gigantically. It's, it becomes a horror movie in a much different way than it, it, it did back then. The, uh, the thing to, to remember about The Exorcist is that there were so many things in that film that had never been done before uh, on, on screen that have become tropes that, that become yes. something that you almost expect uh, today, especially when you're dealing with the supernatural. But, but here's the, the, the final point I want to make before we open the floor, the, the, the true mastery of the storytelling in that film is that the people in it, are looking at what's going on as if um, uh, she's sick. The, uh, the, the girl is unwell. And, and so um, they, they, they move her, the girl, and the audience through every conceivable uh, a kind of, of curative uh, analysis, um, uh, examination, yeah. and, and so forth, uh, until... The, both the audience and the family in the film um, uh, come to realize that this is a, a supernatural um, uh, uh, situation. So that's what I call verisimilitude, the most Gomezian word in the English language, <laughs> um, uh, convincing you 
that what you are looking at is almost documentary real, is, is absolutely real, so that by the time the furniture starts swinging around and, <laughs> and, and she's floating in the air, you are saying to yourself, this is happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and therefore, the devil is real. And that is what was so alarming within the context of the early 1970s that there was a movie that was positing to all of us that this thing that we had begun to doubt that we were forgetting about is palpable and real and in our lives and can take our children. Uh, really, really um, uh, uh, quite striking for the time. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how old I was when I first saw this film. I knew uh, as I've said many times on the show before, uh, in those early days of films, I knew a lot about the makeup special effects and I knew all, I knew all the people, I knew all the players, Rick Baker, Dick Smith. I knew all the guys I knew, knew all them. I knew their work. Their, their work was covered ad infinitum in Fangoria and Starlog. Famous and monsters of famous film. monsters of film land. So there wouldn't have been any visual surprises from that standpoint and by then i'm sure i i'm i'm sure i saw this probably in my teens i probably saw it on videotape the first mm -hmm. time um so i would have been post uh viewing alien in the theater uh, i saw the howling in the theater oh, wow <laughs> and and though i mean those two movies are like high points for me as far as seeing something when i was still able to be scared in a in a in a movie theater and as I said, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I remember when I saw it, I, I, I immediately loved it. It's a, it's an amazingly put together film. I'm a big fan of this director's work, you know, viewing it, viewing it now. I could get, like I was telling Jeff before the show, I don't even know how long it's been since I've watched this start to finish. Cause you know, it, like most things these days, I seem to catch bits and pieces of things as I'm flipping through channels or I'll turn on the TV and something's on and I'll watch 10 minutes of something and I'll be like, Oh yeah. And it just sort of kind of all falls into this like bucket of, of things where it's sort of in your recent memory of like, Oh yeah, I saw that recently, but you didn't see it recently. You saw 10 minutes of it recently. And Watching this film start to finish uh, for, again, for the first time in a really long time, uh, A, holds up magnificently, you know, as most of Friedkin's work does. And there is a ton of stuff I noticed watching the movie this time that really made me think of other things and other films so I could actually see for the first time things that were definitely swiped by later directors in the in the horror genres uh and you know tricks and and stuff like that but there was a couple of things that i that i noticed for the first time that that i thought were really interesting like the scene at the beginning uh after chris is done shooting for the day and she decides to walk home and there's that scene where she's just walking down the street and to, the first time you hear tubular bells uh mike oldfield's score Fantastic. and it just really, really felt like Halloween to me. Like that one little couple of minutes scene just like felt so much like Carpenter's Halloween to me. Um, the leaves are blowing and kind of falling down around her as she's walk just walking down the streets of, uh, of Georgetown. And there was a, uh, 
something else I noticed this time, the dream sequence that Father Karras has about his mother, uh, I never realized how effective that like. And again, it's a very short sequence. It's maybe only a minute long. I never noticed quite how effective that little sequence is before. And just and it's just watching it with more experienced eyes. Subway. Yes. Yeah. The subway, the subway coming yeah. up and going yeah. down. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just the only reason I asked is just so I know what you. Oh yeah. What you're. Yeah. And then he's like yeah. yelling, and there's no sound. It's just like it. It's yeah. it's done so well, to, and to have this dropped in there, you immediately understand what it is. And it's just it. it, it yeah. Freakin is able to, to just do a couple of really simple things. And even though there's no like, you know, like in the movie we're going to talk about later when it comes to dream sequences, just it just gets fucking nuts. <laughs> but in this movie, the visuals are very simple and yet it conveys the exact same effect. And it's it's really kind of amazing to watch. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people consider, you know, between this and French Connection to be his probably most successful films or his most uh, competent, competently made films. I've, I've, I've found that going back through his catalog, I'm a, I'm a big fan of all of his stuff. This was a, uh, this was really fun to watch again. Uh, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten a lot about, I'd forgotten they spent so much time in the opening. For some reason, I thought that opening sequence in Iraq uh, was only like, two or three minutes long and it's longer than that. There's more to it than that. There's, you know, and that's funny again, remembering this movie, it just seemed, there seemed to be more of everything than I remembered of it. I mean, almost on almost every level. So it was really fun to watch again and see all this uh, stuff that I really had forgotten about an experience like this for me is I understand more about like how Hassan revisits a lot of movies so much more often than I do. I I, I kind of go after and I watch new stuff all the time. Whereas it seems like Hassan will go back and watch stuff, even though he's seen it a bunch of times, he goes back and revisits stuff fairly regularly. And you understand why, because there's just, there's things you just, there's just stuff you really like about a, a film or a production, whatever it is. And it's, you, you just kind of, you over time, you just kind of forget the details and some of that stuff softens. Uh, look, look at, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, Detective Kinderman's uh, investigation and, and who he is as a person and how he engages with each uh, of the other characters yeah. in such a way as to get them to surrender information. Um, uh, it's masterful. Um, uh, he, he's um, he. he uh, th there's there's a little you know almost like Columbo, um, a, a, a softness uh, to to his approach. Uh, do you like to see movies? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's disarming. But he's really you know closing in on on the killer. You yeah, know, he, he suspects what's going on very very quickly, and and those scenes are are just beautiful from from an acting standpoint. The way they're the dynamic that's going on there. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, how they cover their mouths and, and, and yeah, you know, those little 70s method, uh, uh <laughs> kind of uh, uh, ticks, yeah. And and I'm and watching and watching this again, like I said, we covered uh, Exorcist 3 last week, and I just you could really see where George C. Scott took all the man, I mean, he nailed all the mannerisms of Lee J. Cobb's performance. Mm -hmm from this film 
for Exorcist 3, I felt. I, I There's a lot of just the way, you know, even from the, like the very last scene where him and the him and Father Dyer go walking off to to have lunch, where he take kind of takes his arm, you know, and you and you really and it's like it's a little thing, yeah. But it's like it really just like sent home and nailed home exactly how much George C. Scott looked at that performance to try and kind of purpose on or repurpose that performance to his own for Exorcist Three. Lay, I know you're a big fan of this movie, so uh, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, this is in my top 50. It's, uh, it's the scariest movie I've ever seen, and that's coming from uh, a bona fide atheist, uh, which should say a lot about how much impact this film has. I mean, you, you read the stories about people going to see this when it came out, and they would, they've had, they had heart attacks. Some people supposedly had miscarriages. I mean, that tells you. Not so much as uh, about the movie, but as our society, like, was so affected by this film. They, it, it's almost like Jeff said, like, you know, Christianity was on its on a downslide at the time. And people were just waiting for something like this to say, no, you wait a minute. This is all real. And I look at it backwards. I look at it as this is still to me an obvious myth but it's so well done and so well portrayed uh, i think almost you know the acting is incredible but the, almost all the credit for this working has got to go to friedkin and his direction and the editing as well because it's just i mean when you watch it the first time you're it, it, there's rarely moments there's moments for you to catch your breath but the sense of dread that just starts to build from the beginning slowly and slowly with uncomfortable scenes after one after another. And then the, uh, I don't even know if in the original version, they had all the subliminal in imagery, but in the version that I prefer, which is I guess called the version you've never seen or whatever. I mean, there's, there's stuff in there that is just, yeah, it, it's, it's chilling. It chills you to the bone to see a, horrible face appear on the stove above the stove or on the back of a door. There's the, the demon. So in the original cut, he actually, he had taken those out and then they were put back in for the version you've never seen. And then when he did the director's cut in 2010, he actually took those back out did again. He? Okay. Yeah. You know, we're, you could say it works either way. I, I think it's right. I think it's great when he, that stuff that he put in the, the scene, where she uh, comes down the stairs is just, even when it came out, I don't even know when that version was released. Did we figure that out? Did anyone find What, the version you've never yeah. seen? That was 99. 99. I mean, we went and saw it at the theater. And I just remember being in the theater and that scene started. And I'd seen the movie three or four times before. I adored it. And I knew She's there was 33. some new scene in the middle, but... <laughs> didn't know what it was and, and that <laughs> scene is i mean you just i remember i i don't i think i was think i was with carl our friend carl for this and i just looked at him and i'm like oh fuck wow <laughs> and um there's just you know this is like um this is almost in a weird way like uh star wars or an indiana jones horror movie there's just 
I mean, you've got that moment at the end where Father Marin with the famous shot of him, you know, walking up to the building. And I mean, that's that that just gives you chills in itself because, you know, you're about to see something you've never seen before and and see something like just so ultra climactic story wise that it's at, at that point, you're all in for the, you know, whether you believe or not or whatever. I, I know some kids have seen this or younger people have seen this recently and they don't find it as scary. And I, I just, I, I, I don't get it. Okay. This, this movie is, <laughs> is like what horror is all about and what real horror is all about as opposed to say Halloween or Friday the 13th night, nightmare on Elm street, which I love all those sure. movies too, but this is uh, uh, think of it this way. Um, uh, uh, Latham, you, the 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 opponent, the bad guy in in The Exorcist, is completely bound to a bed uh, and is a twelve year old girl. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it's still and just to kill somebody. A, 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 a fantastic uh, a confrontation, as dramatic as you could possibly imagine. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's how that's a, that's filmmaking mastery to me to infuse that level of dread and power into into this little girl's body yes and i i've even read uh i i can't remember where i i'm gonna guess an old magazine called video watchdog uh had an article mm-hmm. on this and there was someone who wrote a point of view where that this whole story is supposed to not be a religious story it's supposed to be the opposite to show you how human beings can view certain situations and make the worst of it and have the worst outcome out of it. And that's all due to religion. And I don't even believe that as like the way this story is presented. I I think it's just straightforward saying the devil exists and he got a hold of this girl or had some, uh, a minion get a hold of this girl. And what are you going to do about it? And I, I do have some thoughts about that, but I, I want to hear Hassan's take. Sure, first. and I'm I'm done. I, I don't really have much else to say except everyone should see this movie, and I, I can't wait to show it to my daughter, but that time has not come where she can watch it yet. That's where I'm at. What uh, what what time do you think that'll be? When her mother allows me to do it. <laughs> I mean, I want to show it to her now. There's just some crap. There's some graphic there. I'm yes, not there even worried is. about the language. There's just one or two scenes that are, I, you know, that it, it imprints on your mind. I mean, it is, it is not oh, yeah. something you're going to forget. <laughs> I said, I said, it, it's a hard movie to show her and then have her go, have to go to homeroom the next day thinking That's about right. it. Uh, but uh, I think she, I, I would like to show it to her soon. Um, there's just a couple scenes that I have to ra- or uh, rationalize as okay to show her uh, even being in the same room with her while watching them is a little bit uncomfortable. So, um, <laughs> Fuck me, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's not, it's a little difficult, <laughs> but, um, but she's pretty mature. So anyway, uh, I think it's a classic. Everyone should watch it. It's, it's my favorite horror movie, uh, hands down. Uh, no question. What I thought was so interesting in digging into this also was I was the fact that Friedkin actually did the cut for network television uh, himself, which I thought was an interesting uh, that they got him to do that. 
Um, Cause you figure in most cases, those guys have long since moved on and you know, it's not a thing for them. Something else I read about this movie that when adjusted for inflation, this is Warner brothers studios, highest grossing film of all time. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it's the highest grossing horror film adjusted for inflation until it came out. The new version of it. Holy I'm shit. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and up until I'm not sure exactly when, but at least up until a few years ago, uh, adjusted for inflation, it was the ninth. The it held the number nine spot on uh, highest uh, grossing films. Wow! So amazing. It's long. It's long since been unseated, but it's still that's. It's kind of amazing because I think I, the when you do the adjusting for inflation thing I think I think Gaunt, does gone with the wind still hold the number 1 spot last I heard with inflation adjustments okay but I don't know for certain we I can't qualify that but the last I heard is still the number 1 movie of all time what was that Lay? that was avatar but I could be wrong no that's the most that's the number 1 uh, contemporary movie of all time but give, given for the adjustment and the inflation gone with the wind is the is the highest grossing movie of all time in theory yeah, I don't. That stat doesn't really even do anything for me. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it's it. It's just it's trying to get wor- um, worth to things that are older and whatever. It's fine. So I wanted to hear Hassan's take. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Hassan, uh, assuming you I assume you had seen this before. I've seen yes. it before. Yeah. I like I said, okay. Yeah, I went and one of the re-releases. I think the re-release of the never before seen stuff. Oh. I went with Jeff. That's right. And Chrisula and uh a couple of people, a couple of the old uh, valiant people, the old guard. Yeah, um, and so, and I think that at that point, that was the first time I had seen the movie. Um, oh, okay. Uh, there was a I had a I had a I had a brush with seeing the movie when I was very young, and I was at uh, one of the kids in this building that I am still in, George, who lived uh, uh, right down the hall from me. And I was hanging out with him in his room and he was like, oh, I'm watching The Exorcist or whatever. And it was the scene I will never forget exactly which scene it was. It was the scene where uh, Karis is uh, sprinkling the fake holy water on uh, on Reagan and she freaks yeah. out. And, uh, and if I recall correctly, George took one look at my face and he said, yeah, you're not ready for this, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, right. and I was just like, ah. And she was like, don't tell your mom about this. And, he, and he's yeah. maybe not let yeah. anyone know that this yeah. happened. And he sent my he sent me home, you know, because he was gonna he was hell bent on finishing it. And uh, I went home shaking, and I never went near that movie again until uh, until until I was an adult, and we went to see the re release of it. By then, I was like, oh, this this, this movie has got nothing on me. I got it. I got this, and I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't at all. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, uh, everybody knows I'm a writer and I have been, uh, trying to figure out just about everything about writing. And, uh, I've just recently come to, well, like in a couple of the last couple of months and stuff like that, trying to finish off this project that I'm doing, I've just recently come to the, the, the understanding, the realization and the understanding that most of writing is what you don't write. And I think this film is the epitome of that lesson. Everything in this film 
There's none, none of what's in this film is actually what's moving about the film. Right. Everything in the film that's moving is the impression you get from what you've seen. And then you fill in the blanks by yourself and the, you know, the heaviness of it. I remember growing up and I remember my mother talking about Karis going down that flight of steps. And it was just a, it was a moment of, of profundity for her. And then I remember seeing it and I'm like, wow, that was pretty quick compared to like, you know, the, so the whole, the whole film is this kind of buildup of, you know, oh, then he goes out the window, you know, she talks about the, the whole thing when, when I was old enough that she could discuss it with me. She talked about the whole thing about uh, the Max von Sydow character and then he went in and he had a heart attack and he was too much for him and he died. And then Karis comes in and he's trying to finish it and he, you know, the, he takes the demon into himself and he jumps out the window and it's all there. But the way she felt it was way different than the way you see it. Than the, than, the, than the way you experience it. It's really quick. It's over in a flash. And then the film comes to like an abrupt conclusion at that. You know, Reagan comes out and she's like, oh, she doesn't remember any of it. Throw her in the car, drive away. And, and you know, two guys walk off into the sunset and they play the music that I always confuse with the Halloween music. Right? And so... <laughs> so, I mean, it, as Latham says, it's such a tremendous film. It's so powerful. And I think a couple of a couple of years ago, I would have been hard pressed to figure out exactly why I'm, you know, why it affected me so much. It, it it's it's just the beats. It's not. It doesn't embellish on anything. It doesn't preach about any of it. It doesn't insist. Like I was telling you guys before, the sentimentals. I mean, excuse me. The 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 we'll get to the sterimentals. What I was saying about um, the consumption about evil the tv show that's a show that's that's doing in my opinion way too much showing you way too much giving you way too much information it's uh, it's not a television show it needs to pad its time out uh, apparently and you know it's it's messing with some really heavy like theological stuff so it's got a you know it's it's it it can't afford to be tongue-in-cheek the entire time it can't afford to be thumbing its nose at you. And I don't really, I don't, I don't think of that in a negative way, but it can't really afford to do that. Sometimes it's got to be very straightforward, but I think that ruins it because a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with, you would be, you would, you would, it would be more moving if it didn't, if it didn't make you come to a conclusion. And the exorcist really doesn't ask you if any of this is real or not. It doesn't, it shows you the supernatural aspects of it. It gives you enough plausible deniability in yeah. the, the doctors and the, you know, all these other, all these other uh, steps that they try to take to try to solve the problem that you could say, all right, yeah, that was a, okay. This was, that was pretty heavy, but there's still a way I can psychologically get myself around this. If I, if I didn't want to digest the information that they're trying to give me. Um, <laughs> and for the rest of us who are kind of like, you know, either a believers or in the middle, somewhere hovering in the middle. It's just like, wow. I mean, and that guy went in there and he just, you know, did she kill him or did he have a heart attack? You know, did she kill, did she kill Burke? <laughs> did she throw Burke out the window or did he, was he running out of the house and he fell down the steps, you know, in front of the, in front of the house, like, you know, and there's just, it just will not tell you. 
You know, it gives you a lot of pea soup and head spinning around. That's but that's about as that's about as much as you'll get. And everything else in the film is so is so uncertain. There's there's so much com- com- conflict with a, you know with Karis and his mother and whether he should have done more. He's losing his faith. He's not. He doesn't feel like he's helping anybody. The his you know father Dyer doesn't have anything to tell him. He doesn't. He can't help him at all. Like yeah, well you you want some M and M's? You know, like that's that's the extent of you know. <laughs> and the you got uh, you got Kinnaman, who's you know he's he's not pointing fingers. He's not you know like uh, like Jeff says he's he's uh, he's he's very manipulative. So he's not a trustworthy confidant, you know, because he's looking for something. So like, there's a moment where he's almost, he almost reaches out. He almost makes a connection with Karis. And then they, they, they kind of, they fall off with that really bad joke at the, at the end of it, that the, that Dyer repeats at the end of the film. So, I mean, like the only thing I am, and I'm, I'm close to rambling, but all of it is just uncertain. All of it is a whole bunch of unsaid things a whole bunch of unstated uh, uh, states of mind, un- undeclared states of mind. You know, the you don't really you you know what the the dream sequence means with his mother coming out of the the subway, but you you only right. know that because you've been there. You know, you don't know that you don't know what the movie's trying to say about that. You just you you uh, you apply your own meaning to it. You know, because she's coming out of the station. And then she goes back down, you know, so that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Now, there is a there is a moment where she blatantly pantomimes help me. That's, you know, that's not that's not that's not <laughs> ambiguous. Right. But it's another thing that just it just won't um, it won't hit anything on the nose. It won't press anything on the nose. And it, the whole the whole thing is very unsettling. You're, there's a sense of unease. There's a there's, uh, Freakin's ability to build it where you know something is going to happen where you just don't know what. And it's like watching a zombie movie where you know there's going to be a zombie apocalypse and there's just these these really subtle signs that the world is falling apart while, you know, two people are going for lasagna somewhere, you know, and they have no idea until it's too late. Uh, it's It's really brilliant. The problem with the film, it's just like Jaws or Star Wars. I can't. I can't just say, oh, I loved it. And this is great. You know, there's not enough, there's not enough time to say anything about it. Um, it's a, it's a powerhouse though. I just watched it again today. I have, I've seen it many times since, uh, since watching it for the first time uh, back in 99, I think when that came out, I've wa- I, I watched it again today and it's, it's still, you know, it's a, it's a full, it's a meal, you know, by the time you're done watching that film, you're like, oh, all right. <laughs> That's enough watching yeah. movies for a little while. That I have, I have a lot to say about Exorcist Three after seeing <laughs> Exorcist One, um, which I do feel is a is a Exorcist Three. I do feel is a worthy successor to this film. Not mm-hmm. not on any in, in any by any means on par with this film, but it is a worthy sequel to the film. And then you know, Father to to see the fate of Father Dyer and Kinderman and. And and Damon Karras, you know, it's, it's pretty heavy to know that not that that it's not over for any of them, even though we've been through this this incredible ordeal uh, in this film. But uh, yeah, man, this is a it's a powerful film. It's it's excellent. 
Uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about and get your your take on on a couple of points, uh, the three of you. Um, seeing it again more recently, and as an older uh, person, uh, the the ability for the film to convey uh, mundane horror, uh, the, the the horror of life, I, I found super powerful. Uh, I mean. There, there is the, the fallout of divorce and its impact on, on a child and, and the metaphors that can be read into uh, how, how divorce can change or impact a, a child moving into adolescence. Losing your mother to dementia um, and, and how profoundly horrifying that, that can be, um, uh, you know, the, those plaintive uh, begging that, that she does uh, and and how that's echoed and thrown in his face uh, uh, later. Um, watching your child drift away um, uh, to, to, to have this beautiful girl uh, watch her behavior change. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, in the 60s, the, a whole generation watched their, <laughs> their, their children drift away. <laughs> um, you know, the, the nightmare child, the, the dark child was was something that that this film galvanized. And then many films after that, uh, uh, you know, uh, played on on the evil uh, seed, the, the, the dark child, uh, your child falling ill and 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 trying to do whatever you can to uh, to to make your child better. And not knowing not why, knowing or being why. able to figure out why, it, it, right? It, it, you know, just just horrifying because it's so realistically uh, portrayed. There is there is blasphemy, uh, which uh, you know it, it, to this day is rarely uh, uh, depicted on screen, uh, particularly with with a degree of power. It's played for laughs sometimes, but think about when that that uh, priest walks into the 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 the, the rectory. And there's that statue. If you look closely at the desecrated statue, th there, those are arts and crafts supplies that are on that statue, which you saw in, in Regan's uh, right. uh, a playroom. It's oh, her man. stuff. Look right. closely, uh, Hassan. That's that's yeah. Scary. It's alluded to that that she was the one who did the uh, did the act. Yeah, we. I, I always kind of thought that but but this time i looked because because film now is so crystal clear in the blu-ray right you can see the 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 materials that she was using to make her captain howdy thing and, and then the, the the final element and this is what i'm really curious about from the three of you uh, there is a subtext of sexual abuse if you think about uh, the symptoms she uh, displays uh, early on and the highly uh, uh, sexualized behavior and the, uh, and the use of language and what she does to people, right? Uh, uh, she grabs that man's groin. She, she grabs her mom's face and, and uh, you know, does something sexual with it and, and so forth. The, the, there is a, a kind of, uh, uh, and I don't know that that was designed at all, that Burke Dennings, what did he do in that room? You, you know, right. uh, we don't know 100%. So, so, um, so there's this subtext of, of sexual abuse 
And, and the fact, uh, what was shocking to me, you know, yesterday watching this film was they could never get away with, with shooting a film <laughs> where th this child is doing these. <laughs> Linda Blair was 12. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Know, um, yeah. you know, or between 12 and 14 shooting this thing. Um, my God, uh, uh, you know, the, the overt nature of it and, and the fact that as much is in the film in 1973 as was there was, was truly uh, uh, stunning. Is that okay? Um, uh, can we ever see that again? Do we want to ever see it again? Um, you know, what, what's your thought on, on that? You know, these mundane horrors, particularly the, the sexual horror uh, that's, that's communicated here. Well, as someone who watches a lot of horror films, I think that horror films follow in a line or try to with kind of the the pulse of what's happening in 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 mainstream filmmaking to a to an extent like you're seeing a lot more horror films generated today from from female filmmakers you're seeing a lot more horror films generated today that are that the themes behind them are more female based or you're seeing a lot more, you know, there's always been the final girl trope that's been through that's been running through horror films forever. And that's one, you know, in a way, I suppose that's been a, a foundation for a defense of horror films when they when they come back on them about, you know, <clears throat> the hypersexualization and, you know, the sort of attack on women in general in films as there always has been. But they can sort of fall back on the fact. Yeah, but well, nine times out of 10, the one that makes it through is a woman and she's the one that, get, that ultimately wins in the end. So I think that they've kind of had that in their hip pocket for a long time. But I think that horror film, modern horror films are getting are getting smarter. They're getting you know, there's there's fewer. I mean, listen, you can still find the stupid low budget horror film out there. You can there's being filmmakers are making films on their iPhones, for God's sake. So there's not no shortage of ways to make good looking films. You know, like we talked about Paper Tigers a few weeks ago and we talked about budgets and, and, and the ability to make a film and, and make a film well. And you look at a film that somebody went and spent 40 million dollars on <laughs> and it's just an absolute turd. And these guys turn around and make a, th you know, just an absolutely competent, well-made, well-written, well-structured film and deliver it for $150,000. And and even that is a lot. I mean, Steven Soderbergh shot an entire film on his iPhone, what, five years ago, four years ago? And he shot, and it was a yeah, horror film, technically. Uh, you know, so I yeah, mean... I never got a chance to see it. Yeah, insane. But it was a big yeah. deal when it happened. Yeah, I mean, he just, he did it to, he, he did it to prove it could be done, you know, because he was like, I want to see if I can make a film quality or a, a movie quality or, a, you know, a, without using these you know, hundred thousand dollar cameras and everything else. I want to use my iPhone and he did it. He pulled it off. Sure. Tangerine uh, uh, made for a hundred thousand dollars on an iPhone. Yeah. So, I mean, the ability and that is, you know, we've, we've covered that to some, some minor extent in our discussions on the show throughout the episodes about, you know, what it all comes back to is starting off with a good story and starting off with a, a good a good premise and a good story. And, and, and cause otherwise you, you know, you can kind of throw it, you know, 
and we'll get to we'll get to our other film, which is a a successful example, I feel, of of a kitchen sink kind of movie mm-hmm. where it's like literally everything is there. Like sure. there's 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 14 different movies there, but that's <laughs> again a whole different thing. Um yeah, I, I feel that there definitely is a sea change in filmmaking or that that's been happening. And you're right. You know, my, my, the movie I always go back to is blazing saddles. And I always think that I could, you, could you make blazing saddles today? No way. Probably not with the lines in it. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, is people will still watch that movie today. Yeah. And that movie, and that movie doesn't get There are exceptions to the rule. I mean, South Park is an exception to the rule. Uh, You know, there are properties that, can get away with whatever they want because from the beginning they've they've shown that a they don't give a fuck and b they don't care and they there's really they'll cross any line and they don't they just don't care and the people that think there's a line is not their audience well you know in 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 some cases the difference is hard though i mean in in say a movie like uh uh, blazing saddles there's a lot of heart in the movie and the and all the characters are well sure all the characters are genuine like three-dimensional characters so all the vulgarity and the you know the racism and stuff like that all all played for jokes is not that's not that wasn't the point of the film that's an aspect of the film and and well we know right. that but the typical person mm-hmm. trying to cancel stuff does you know they're they're kind of being hypocritical because they're they're it, it doesn't catch on as much you know blazing saddles they gets to slide occasionally you you couldn't make it again but but Hassan's point is well taken there is there is such heart same with South Park yeah, actually yeah there is a you know a progressive something going on underneath that allows them to get away with with that sort of thing. It's you, the you, nature you of the humor, not. you know, like you can't you can't just do the humor for the hu- the sake of the humor. There's got to be, you know, you've got to earn those jokes. And a lot of people don't understand how and it, myself included those things. That's why I don't dabble in that kind of humor. It, it, a lot of that humor is earned. And you, if you don't <laughs> earn it, it's vulgar. If you earn it, it's pretty funny. You know, I've 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 laughed at a lot of things that I don't think. You know, the, the subject matter, I don't think it's funny, but I've laughed at it. And, and sometimes you laugh because the, the, the teller of the joke pulled the joke off. So you laugh in celebration, like, oh, okay, right. well done, you know. Yeah, I'll go, you know, that was dangerous, that was edgy, you know, I wouldn't have done it. Like, like, what's his, like Seinfeld said years ago about cab drivers in New York, he's like, you know, I would have never tried that with my car, you know, and you're, and you're like, hey, well done, you know, you, you know. You know, all the all the stunts that they pull, you know, so it's it's kind of like a celebration of uh, of success, you know, and the, the fact that you laughed. Also, you're happy you laughed. You're happy if someone tells you a joke and you laughed, you know, because so, so many times people tell you jokes and you don't laugh. You know, a lot of that that humor isn't funny. Uh, unfunny humor is failure. It doesn't if it doesn't make you laugh, then it failed. So. You know, and it's humor is a very tough thing. So I don't know. I I, I agree with cancel culture. Uh, I agree that 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 it exists and it's then it's 
probably a, a ticking time bomb that's going to get everybody who's playing with it. Did you say you agree with cancel culture? I just wanted to clarify. I agree. I yeah. I just I did clarify. I said I agree. It exists. Oh, it exists. You know? okay. Um, and uh, I think, uh, but I do think it's become a catch-all for everything. I mean. If if you're you know if you've done something bad and something you lose your job over it or you you get fired over it that's not necessarily cancel culture that's consequences that's a comeuppance yeah um, if you're if you if you put out a comedic movie and that comedic movie is not funny that's not cancel culture that's your movie failed your movie is not funny that's subjective um, that's popular you know enough people think it's not funny is what you mean but but if I but the majority if, as a filmmaker if i want if i wanted to readapt william peter blatty's the exorcist um uh i i don't know that i'd be able to to no, adapt probably it as, as it was written well all, there is almost every sequence in the film that is taken directly from the book mm-hmm. uh is much much harsher in the but book in the book that's right and I mean, I mean, and Friedkin and Blatty both streamlined this. We did just mention, uh, I saw the devil. Yeah. And that is, a, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, you would not think that a movie like that could exist in, in, in a, any kind of mainstream existence in a world that's overrun with cancel culture, because there's a lot of vulgarity in that, in that uh, film. There's a lot of the stuff that supposedly the denizens of, of cancellation uh, rail against. And that film is relatively, I mean, it's a controversial film, but it's relatively left alone. It's not, you know, there's not people out with. But it, it, that's, a, that's an international import that, that has a niche, uh, a, a market. The, you know, The Exorcist was a, a Hollywood movie. Right. Um, you know, so there's a, it, it's, there's a different economy I mean, of scale. Uh, you know, a, a, a low budget splatter film or an international movie. You couldn't have gotten away with The away Exorcist with in 1983. You know, like you couldn't in, <laughs> in Reagan era America, you couldn't have gotten away with that film. Not in the, not in the mid 80s, you know, maybe in the 90s when everything was when we were just coming out from under that umbrella and everybody started to get really, uh, you know, right. Well, yeah, they, they put it back. Then, out. You know, now the now the now the left uh, is the new conservative. You know, so I mean, it's it's all cyclical. I mean, there'll come a time when all that stuff is, you know, when we come out of our fog and all that stuff is is a, openly appreciated again. Um, but I mean, it's just that uh, I I do agree that time is not now. You could not do it. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting, and yet. And it's interesting, too, because I think that the envelopes that that Jeff's talking about in The Exorcist that were pushed to and over the edge or over their particular lines, I think filmmakers looking at that today wouldn't want to do it, not only because of the the obviously subject matter of the of the actual event that took place, but imitation, but also because it's like. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, it's not like imitation of a movie that four people saw. It's an imitation of of what's arguably considered the scariest film of all time. Right, so it's right. like, you know, they might homage parts of it, but they're not going to outright repeat a sequence like that 
because they're, who was they're it? just going to get Van called Zandt, out on. Who, who, who remade uh, Psycho shot for shot Psycho. and got destroyed for Pointless. it. And they wrecked him for it. Yes. <laughs> Pointless. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. because it's been done. That's you something know, you've, you do you and have your friends. It. Okay. That's, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't see it. Like the RoboCop remake, right? <laughs> um, the, <laughs> Which is on YouTube. If you haven't seen that, do that uh, for uh, yourself. Some, oh, but anyway. <laughs> some kind of uh, 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 supposedly apocryphal, but but probably true uh, uh, issues about the filmmaking uh, of The Exorcist. Which, um, which some of these things the director uh, Freakin has admitted to uh, in, included the fact that he he wanted the the uh, breath to yeah. to be visible uh, yeah. in, in those cold rooms, and he refrigerated those rooms. That twelve year old girl was in you know thirty in a thirty degree room. room. Yep. Um, uh, uh, he um, uh, uh, in order to get uh, a Karis to uh, uh, react to a sound effect on the tape recording uh he he snuck up behind uh, the the actor and fired a a blank fired a gun in order to get to 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 jump um uh uh, father dyer at the end is is trying to uh, comfort the the dying uh uh uh, karis and uh freaking was unhappy with the way he was acting And literally smacked him in the face over and over again to make his hands tremble the way that they did as he uh, was was comforting them. The, the, no, directors both can't parties do that agree to it. That's the only <laughs> right, way. Right. Yeah, but I mean, some of that stuff. Some of that stuff you Go shouldn't be doing me. anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, like I, I'm. I'm right. of two minds about it. That's that's the problem. That's that's my main problem with it. I'm I'm usually of two mm. minds of it um some of the stuff yeah you can't get away with that anymore um and i and i'm glad that they got away with it because it made such a it gave me such an experience in watching it but then again you know it's like uh it's it's like hey this chicken sandwich tastes really great so you gotta kill the chicken you know you then you're the one plucking the chicken it's not suddenly it's Nah, yeah, but think not, how good that sandwich anymore. is. Now, now I'm a changed man. Now I'm like, now I'm a vegan because I've seen what every chicken sandwich I've ever had in my life, what it costs, and now I can't do it anymore. So, some sometimes you don't want to see how the sausage is made, and that doesn't necessarily mean that 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 sausage making is a good thing. I don't know. Uh, I've been I've been on a few movie sets, including Avatar. And, and have seen d- directors behave <laughs> d- behave roughly uh you know it's not easy it, it, uh, you know and and i don't know that um he he, he can persist at, at uh, is this a new one or the or the uh the original i, I was on uh the, the first avatar yeah but, even yeah. that was like yeah. what? and even then i heard he calmed down <laughs> wow compared to titanic <laughs> some <laughs> Some interesting behind this, some interesting behind the scenes stuff about this. Stanley Kubrick wanted to make mm-hmm. this movie, um, but only if he could produce it himself. Uh, and the studio was worried he would go <laughs> over budget and over schedule, and the, so they 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 said no, you can't. Um, and and Warner Brothers said, well, we're going to give it to Mark Rydell. And Blatty balked and said, no, I want Billy Friedkin to do this. 
And so after standing off with the studio, uh, uh, Blatty did eventually get his way. Also, Alfred Hitchcock turned down the chance to acquire the rights, the screen rights to the novel. And then once they were acquired by another producer, uh, he turned down the chance to direct it after the fact. That's pretty interesting. I, I, imagine like Alfred Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick. I mean, Stanley Kubrick almost, but Alfred Hitchcock. I, yeah, I'm we not wouldn't, so sure. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be anything it, there. It's in his bag. It's uh, not his thing. Friedkin yeah. has said that they saw over 500 young actresses in the search for Reagan McNeil. Uh, and if you think back to all the actresses who are of a certain age today, chances are they probably were through the process. Uh, a partial list includes Laura Dern, Kim Basinger, Melanie Griffith, Eve Plum. Uh, Fried, Friedkin refused to give the role to Brooke Shields because she was too young. Uh, Denise Nickerson, who was Violet from the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, was considered. Uh, but the material, the material trouble, troubled her parents too much. Good parents. And, and, they, and they pulled her out. Um, another parent who pulled out her daughter was Janet Lee, as Jamie Lee Curtis was also up for an audition for the role of Reagan. Wow. And when it comes to the score of this film, which, which honestly, there's not a ton of score for this. Friedkin originally had, <laughs> there's some really funny stories about this, but apparently uh, Friedkin had originally wanted Bernard Herman to do the score for this film. So he flew to England to see Herman. And if you know anything about soundtrack music, Bernard Herrmann is, has scored some of the greatest sci-fi and horror films ever. And, but he's got like most made composers, he's got a very specific sound and style. And, and I think what it came down to is Herman didn't want to really do that because basically from the way Friedkin would wanted to get updates from him, and, and Herman refused to not to come to the U S to do the job, you know? So, and Friedkin was wanting music updates like every single day. Uh, eventually that they just walked away from each other and, 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 and Herman uh, bad mouthed the script and the story and all this other stuff later on uh, unnecessarily. But so then uh, Friedkin went and hired, uh, they uh, contracted Lalo Schifrin, Lalo Schifrin, to do the score for the uh, film. Uh, and he scored the entire movie and the initial sat down, they sat down initially and, and <laughs> started playing the score synced with the rough cut of the film. And the story is that Friedkin stopped it halfway through or not halfway through halfway through the first reel, uh, got up, took the music reels off of the recorder and threw them out the window of the studio and, fi and fired him on the spot. And he was in Amit Erdogan's office. Uh, and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do as far as getting someone to do the score for this. And he looked over and there was a copy of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, which apparently had just recently been released, sitting on the desk in Amit Erdogan's office. And Friedkin's like, oh, it covers really cool. What is that? And so he threw it on the, 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 the turntable there in the office. And he heard the, that piece of music that everyone knows. And he's like, that's it. I want that. And it was funny because later 
uh, in, a, in a, an interview he did for uh, after he had done the film Sorcerer, uh, in which he had Tangerine Dream do the soundtrack. He goes, if I knew these guys existed back when I did The Exorcist, he goes, they would have done the soundtrack for The Exorcist. The studio wanted Marlon Brando for the role of Father Marin, and Friedkin immediately vetoed this by saying, if Brando becomes involved, it's going to become a Brando film. And that's it. And it won't be anything else. And, uh, and as far as actresses who were auditioned for the role or offered the roles, well, offered the role and declined of the role of Chris, the mother, uh, Lee Remick, Carol Burnett, Barbara Streisand, Raquel Welch, Jane Fonda, uh, and Audrey Hepburn. And Audrey Hepburn was offered the role, but she said, I'll do it. But she's like, you have to shoot everything in Rome. And Friedkin was like, I'm not going to Rome to shoot, to shoot just your scenes. Friedkin was like, so you don't want to work. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> you don't like, want the job. Just, yeah. <laughs> And uh, apparently Alan Alda was offered a role in this movie, but turned it down because he did not like the book. <laughs> wow. Uh, I wanted to point out that uh, uh, Linda Blair, uh, uh, within a, a few years of The Exorcist, um, starred in a trilogy of uh, television movies uh, unrelated to each other that are actually worth taking a look at um, because of how dark uh, the three of them are. Oh, the teenage that's, alcoholic. That's right. So, so it's Sarah T. Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, um, uh, which start with co- with co-star Mark Hamill. Oh wow! Um, uh, pre Star Wars. Um, uh, then there's a Born Innocent, where uh, uh, she goes to prison um, and um, and has to contend with. Uh, some terrible prison. things yeah. that, that happen <laughs> yeah. in, in prison. Yeah. Uh-huh. I guess it's juvie prison. And, uh, and finally, she co-stars with um, uh, Martin Sheen, uh, uh, who kidnaps her um, uh, in, in a movie called Sweet Hostage. Um, and and he's, um, uh, uh, he uh, uh, goes all the way uh, with... Uh, another with film Linda you Blair couldn't get away with film. today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, right. He kidnaps her, rapes well, her, yeah. and she falls in love with him. Um, uh, but, um, but he's very poetic. He's very, oh. you know, dreamy. Uh, and, and um, <laughs> so, but they're, they're really, um, uh, oddities that, that transcended the, the kind of movie of the week, uh, you know, kind of bland, uh, uh, films she, and, and she's quite striking in, in all three, uh, uh films. She was also an airport 75. Yeah. Uh, as uh, as a girl who was uh, very ill and on the plane and needed medical attention, explodes something bad <laughs> happens to the plane. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. not, she doesn't have good luck in those movies. Well, because you have to you have to so, think about her at that point in her career. She's probably pretty much just like you know what I'm never going to do anything that's going to be as dark or horrible as what I've just been forced to go through. Yeah. So at this point, lay it on me. There's pretty much not anything I'm not going to do. The only, the one thing I will say, the one point about Exorcist 2, the mm. heretic here is that when she signed on to do the sequel, she said, no makeup. <laughs> I'm not doing the makeup again. <laughs> Exorcist was the first horror film to be nominated for a best picture. That's right. Did not win. Did not win. <laughs> and also, Jason Miller was uh, nominated. 
it's probably this yeah. movie's probably what got him and yeah <laughs> launched him on his unfortunate alcoholic streak you know all those uh plumbing of depths that he had to do for this is pretty heavy man yeah um it's been a it's been a jason miller uh month right the last two we the last three <laughs> movies we watched had him in it with the. Uh, uh oh the ninth the ninth configuration exorcist exorcist three and, right and now the exorcist so it's pretty much his uh yeah. close to his oeuvre um uh, uh, dick smith uh invented the bladder uh effect for the exorcist um it's worth pointing out because i know you, you you had said that it wasn't surprising by the time we got to alien and and oh sure sure and, and so forth but um uh, but that effect, I'll never forget uh, the appearance of Help Me oh, on, yeah, on Regan's stomach. Um, uh, it, it, the, the gasp that went through the audience yeah. where, where they were that, that uh, you know, the, the vividness of the understanding that she was inside there. Um, uh, you yeah, know, kind of scratching this sign uh, uh, to to uh, our heroes was was really, really. Um, you know, one of the most striking moments in film. And, and also, I mean, even, I mean, this film is the film that Rick, that Dick Smith hired a, a young, a young makeup assistant named Rick Baker. Baker. That's right. And that's where, that's where he got his start was on this film. And that scene that you're talking about how they actually did that help me effect. First of all, it's shot and it's, it's played in reverse mm-hmm. of how it was actually done. But, you know, they took, you know, I don't know if anybody gives a shit about how the special effects were done, but I, here nor there. Uh, but it's yeah, the 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 learning curve and sort of like the how they figured out how to do stuff on stuff like that, you know, the, the 360 degree head. Um, and apparently with the the second time it happens, when the room is supposed to be super cold, you notice when the head comes around and stops, a breath comes out of the mouth that you can see a breath and it was funny because one of the camera guys made a joke because they knew it was going to be this this mechanical head that was going to come around and he said wouldn't it be funny if we could have a breath come out of her mouth and it did it and the special effects guys were immediately like yeah that would be pretty cool actually and they figured out a way to make it happen (laughs) so that's the kind of stuff that just you know like leads to like these like leaps in makeup makeup effects and just visual effects in general is is someone having an idea and it's like what's the best way we can do it and then somebody figures out hey i know what happens when you put this chemical onto this thing and this is what well, well if we shoot it we can do it backwards and it'll look like it's rising up out of her belly you know and it just and it's just absolutely amazing and, and all of this guys uh, uh, amounts to you know the the true impact that the film made on me which is the 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 fact that the groundwork for the reality of this world was beautifully laid in in the movie yeah um it it went a long way to convincing the audience that what they were seeing uh, was in fact real and um uh and um i i try to take that you know, in my work, I work on these fantastical worlds and and um, uh, uh, and I'm involved in a lot of the Disney stuff and, and so forth. And and a, a big reason why uh, my company is called in is because we really want to uh, 
um, uh, understand the, the reality of, of the universe of Pirates of the Caribbean or, or the reality of the universe of Halo and, and so forth. So we ask questions and, and try to, to fill in a few blanks, at least from the perspective of the creators, so that um, when they tell these stories, they are informed by a kind of logic. It could be bullshit logic or, or <laughs> techno babble logic, but there is a logic that that has a cause and effect that that um, that maintains its integrity. We don't abandon it as as we uh, um, uh, move forward in in the tellings of the stories, e even across different media platforms. And and to me that that a lot of that comes from. Uh, you know, the, the, the groundwork that Tolkien laid to create such a realistic, uh, you know, Middle yes. Earth and, and, and so forth. But the, when it comes to the real world, man, you can't beat the exorcist for, for <laughs> establishing, you know, a baseline of reality before shit gets crazy. Yep. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great background material. Uh, about the exorcist there's a great there's several really good documentaries about it uh there was one that came out in looks like 1998 called the fear of god i think that one was one is one is that appears on the spe the original special edition or possibly the re-release edition of the exorcist dvd or blu-ray and then there is a new one that's available on shutter called uh leap of faith which is a basically an hour and a half long interview with William Friedkin, where he's just sitting and just talking about the exorcist and the making of that one's uh, crazy. There's just some really great stuff in it. I mean, one of the things it's that a hell of an interview <laughs> that, Oh, it is. I mean, one of the, the biggest thing that struck me about that was that when he basically came out and said that Blatty had offered to give up all of his interests in the film, if Friedkin would let him play father Karras and Friedkin's like, no, <laughs> He's like, you're going to play the guy who's in five minutes at <laughs> the beginning or two minutes in the beginning of the movie, and then you're out. <laughs> Probably for the best, though. But uh, that is, I believe we have been exercised. <laughs> and real quick, Jeff, uh, we have gone through uh, uh, William Friedkin's body previously. What do we do of his? Oh, no. Uh, did we do something that we thought we did something else of his? No, I don't think we did. No, 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 we I haven't done mention. Okay, so, um, so out of William Friedkin's films, Jeff, what would you yeah. say would be the top three? Wow, um, blue chips. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, certainly, um, uh, the the Exorcist is is his greatest work, um, but he also uh, uh, did the French Connection, which, which is a, a, a you know a stunning a, a, a cop movie, and um, uh, I, I think there's a lot of value in, in Twelve Angry Men. Would I put it uh, uh, in the top three? Maybe not. Um, uh, it was it was still uh, uh, truly worth seeing. Um, Freakin did a movie that was uh, well. He he did to live and die in L.A., which one of my is favorites. Very much worth uh, uh, seeing um, uh, a, a, a striking twist in the middle of that movie that, mm -hmm. that is unforgettable. Um, uh, but he did cruising, 
which I thought yeah. was really at, at the time uh, uh, bold for for Freakin and for uh, Al Pacino. Well, to, to... funny story about cruising. Yeah. <laughs> cruising is based on a series of killings that they were never solved and never proven, but were technically admitted to by the bearded guy in the radiology scene in The Exorcist. (laughs) He is an alleged serial killer who was never caught because they could not pin the crimes on him. That's... And he was in The Exorcist. He was in the movie. He was a, he was a radiologist, and he played a, a radiologist assistant in the film. But then later, he was arrested for murder. And it turns That's out wow. that he and they actually were able to connect him peripherally, or they thought to these other six bodies, but they could not prove that it was him. So the body, the murders went un un uh, unsolved. And then he died before anything could be done. But so those like those killings, which were called the black bag murders, uh, was the sub was the source material for cruising. Right. They happened in the meatpacking dr- district in, right. the, in the leather uh, subculture there. Yep. Um, uh, Paul Bateson is the name Paul of the Bateson. bearded man in The Exorcist. Yep. Fascinating. Oh, yeah, man, I, you got me there. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, one of my, uh, as far as my favorite Friedkin film, I would probably go with Sorcerer, uh, his remake of uh, Henri Clouseau's uh, Wages of Fear. Uh, I, I absolutely love that movie. That That's a movie that the poster sold me on that movie and, and made me want to see it. And when I saw it, eventually I was absolutely blown away. And then it made me go and hunt down the original. Once I discovered that it was a remake uh, and, and, and go watch it as well. Um, and I, I absolutely love that. Uh, I would probably put, uh, and again, another Friedkin film that had a profound effect on me was like you said, to live and die in LA. And when that, that came out in 85. So I was, 17 when i saw it and that's a movie that i walked out of and i was like wait a second you can't do that that's that's the main guy you can't do that and i was just i was blown away by that aspect of that story i mean that's like i was trying not to give that away yeah it's a it's a a, yeah well it's a it's a it's a 30 year old movie it's what are you gonna do um to live and die on this podcast. <laughs> to, live and, to live and die in the last podcast. Uh, so, yeah, to live and die in L.A., Sorcerer. And I'd probably put, I don't know, I'd have to go. I'm, a, I'm back and forth between Exorcist and Friend. What? How the fuck do you not put Exorcist up there is what I was going to say. Well, between Exorcist and French Connection, those are both two really good movies. Well, well I like The Exorcist, but I'm such a fan of horror I hold other horror films in higher esteem, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. I have my own tastes and my own thoughts on the matter because I've seen probably like a thousand more horror films than you have. So <laughs> well, we all have our character flaws. Yeah, we can call it whatever you want, regardless. Anyway, okay, so it's one, Hassan. two, and then three A and three B. Got it. Hassan, thoughts? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, the French Connection. It's it's between the French Connection and uh, The Exorcist. I liked Rules of Engagement. I liked. Uh, yeah, I mean, can you say you liked Cruising? You know, it's it's not a movie <laughs> to like or dislike. It's it's a pretty heavy movie. It's a well made movie. I've only seen half of To Live and Die in L.A., so I I wow. can't judge that one. Long yeah, half. Never. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I don't need to see the other half now. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. No, no, don't. Um, that's what happens when you spoil stuff for me. I don't see it. Um, because now right. I don't know if the impact would work. What? I'm not making a stink. It's your <laughs> fault. Um. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> And uh, yeah, some of his other films are just kind of really garbage. Oh, no, I don't use language like that. I did, and I... Cinema. He, he really, really, uh, you know, yeah. when you think about cinema in the 70s, William Friedkin is right there. Yeah. And, it, oh. and it shows. It really does show. Um, and then, of course, I've, I've loved I loved his uh, retrospective on uh, The Exorcist that uh, the same documentary or the same in- long interview feature-length interview about uh, the exorcist that steve was talking about at the beginning of the show Leap of faith. That, that's just am- amazing watching did he just, you haven't seen it it's just fun watching him talk yes. yeah and he's like it's i'll be directed him he, he i don't know Latham. i he did he he drops some really like casual wisdom in that I mean, just casual storytelling yep. wisdom. It's like, yeah, you don't do this. You don't do that. You know, you pour the cereal before the milk, you know, like, like really it's stuff that simple, but um, pretty profound procedurally if, speaking. If you want to see something really amusing uh, there, there uh, it's on YouTube. It's called Sorcerers, a conversation with William Friedkin and Nicholas Wending Refn. Uh Oh, uh, the, the director of, of drive yeah. and, and, and so forth. They get into a fight that is completely rollicking, uh, <laughs> and and freaking is so angry at, at him for for being you know a moron. Oh um, my god! It's uh, it's. I it's like it all right. I gotta find that for sure. <laughs> also, something else on YouTube to look for: uh, the original theatrical teaser trailer for The Exorcist is available on to watch on YouTube. Nice. Uh, it was originally banned in most theaters because they felt it was it was way over the top. Um, plus, it's filled with pulsing light images, and they were having issues with people having bad reactions to. <laughs> it was giving people epileptic fits, but uh, <laughs> but. Uh, it's uh, it's up there. You can watch it, and it's yeah. It's just kind of crazy. Well, see what I'm saying? It's it was even canceled in its own day. <laughs> in, in a way, it's, per, it's promotional material was canceled. <laughs> I have it here. The the conversation William Freak and Nicholas Winton. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's, <laughs> the, the thumbnail looks like they're fighting. <laughs> Yeah, it does. Oh, oh my God. That's going to be funny. Yeah. Yeah. Friedkin is just, he's so, he's so severe. It's like you have all these stories from so many people about the severity at which he works. It's just, it's, and you get it, you get a sense of it watching him interviews and the way he talks about stuff. So he's very, Mm -hmm. he's very, very, he's very, uh, you know, he, believes he believes in exactly what he says and that's you know and that that's the right and the wrong of it as far as he's concerned so 
uh, rare. It's interesting. His uh, his devotion to his work is is great. Uh, uh, Jeff, uh, sorry about the uh, the break in the middle, but thanks so much for joining us again, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have an awesome time with you guys, and and uh, uh, truly uh, always insightful. And uh, even when we disagree on films, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And you're teaching me new things. I'm looking at this band Exorcist trailer right now, and I have never seen it before. Oh, really? It's pretty <laughs> freaking awesome. I, I, it, <laughs> I don't even believe it existed. Look at that. That's It's nuts. Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, you learn something new on uh, 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 Cinemental. I try. We try. You know, we don't always <laughs> succeed, but we do try. <laughs> All right, Jeff, listen, uh, sorry to keep you up so late, but uh, we will uh, look forward to your return and uh, I will uh, I will be in touch soon. Um, uh, Follow me on Twitter, everyone at Jeff underscore Gomez. Talk soon. Please do. Bye bye, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are great. Thanks to Fesleyan Studios for our music, for our opening music. Get your own awesome music at fesleyanstudios.com. Please check out our website at cinementalpod.com for all of our previous episodes. And don't forget to download and subscribe to Cinemental wherever you enjoy your podcast. You can always listen to new episodes at cinementalpod.com. And of course, you can always follow us on all major social media accounts at cinementalpod. Special thanks to our guest, Jeff Gomez, and for Hassan Godwin, Lathan Conger III, and myself. We say thank you so much for listening. And as always, in the words of our friend and demon-possessed girl child, Truman Burbank. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night.